Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Come on back. Take a seat. Uh, Open up, please, to Romans chapter 12. It's page 948 in the Red Bible. Uh, Those Red Bibles are located in the seat in front of you. Uh, We also have large print blue Bibles in the back if you need that. And it's page 1126 in that and 1231 in the Children's Bible. Romans chapter 12. It's a thick passage today, so we're going to read it in parts, Um, but let's open in prayer. Gracious God, we come today to worship you, to enjoy you, to fellowship with the saints, but also to hear from your word. And God, we come confessing that we come to your word with many blind spots, many agendas, many selfish agendas, hoping and wanting you to say exactly what we want you to say. There are so many blind spots that we have uh, we don't even see. So God, pray today that you would give us soft hearts, humble hearts, knowing that we are limited people. We are distracted people. We are sinful people. And we need your power through your spirit to change us, to transform us, and to teach us from your word. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year I have a friend uh, who gives my family free tickets to go to a Green Bay Gamblers game. So we have this annual occasion where we go out to eat and we go to a Green Bay Gamblers game. Well, for us, it was this past Friday. And I don't know what it is, but something about the last few years has been very odd. Evidently, my family has a spiritual gift of getting free swag, okay? Because when we go to these games, you probably know they throw balls into the crowd. They throw t-shirts into the crowd. They do all of these things. And somehow, over the past three years, we've always gotten something from these games, Well, this year, uh, it was the third period, and we didn't get anything yet, and Cooper was kind of bemoaning it, and I said, it's okay, like, we don't need free stuff every time we come to the Green Bay Gamblers game, okay? Well, there it was, middle of third period, and from heaven above comes down these parachutes, and on these parachutes are these pucks and these gift certificates, and so they're dropping these parachutes, and the parachutes are, are really probably about... 50 feet away from us. They're they're descending over a different crowd of people. But I'm standing up, Cooper's standing up, and we're looking at this parachute, sure that we're not going to get it. In fact, Trish was sitting next to me, and she was looking up at it, and she didn't even get up because she knew it was going to another place. Well, by God's grace, some wind came through the arena, and the parachute starts coming our direction. 
And so I'm looking at it. I'm like, Trish, get up, get up. It's coming, it's coming, get up. It was like Jesus was coming back. I'm like, get up. It's coming this direction. So it floats this way, and it's going, and now the seats in front of me are empty, and I, I reach over, almost falling, just like that, and I snag the parachute. You can see the picture of it right there. Cooper's happy, and it was a good time. But we love going to events like this, like Green Bay Gamblers, Green Bay Blizzard, Packers games, things like that. We love going because it is just, it's fun. We go, we cheer, we stand a little, we sit a little, we dance a little, we sing a little. They sing, they pull out all of these songs. I mean, they must have a playlist of 300 songs of all these great songs like R-O-C-K in the USA. I haven't heard that since the last time I went to a Blizzard game. It's a great song. And so we go there, we drop some money, we have fun. I Saw someone I knew and said hi to them. And then we got in the car and we went home. Just like anybody would go to probably a gambler game. The reason I bring that up is because I think many times we approach church like a hockey game. Or like a movie. Or, or, or like going out to eat. You know, it is, it's okay in those venues to be consumers. Uh, that's what you go, that's what you pay to do. But I think many times we're trained by our culture to come to church we come in, we're, we're friendly to a few people, we stand, we sit, we sing our favorite songs. Maybe you dance a little bit if you're a little charismatic, but we have some fun. And then, and then you pack in your car and you go away. And the question is, is that, is that what church is supposed to be? Is that, is that who we're supposed to be? We, we live and breathe a consumeristic culture that teaches us that everything is about our ultimate pleasure. The customer is always right, right? I mean, there are websites, and I use these, where they rate, whether it be restaurants or hotels or whatever it might be, to see how much they catered to your personal needs. We have learned that the world is all about us, and we have brought that into the church. Consumerism is not something some of us struggle with. It's something all of us struggle with. I struggle with consumerism in the church. I want the music to be this way. I want children's ministry to go this way. I want the kids to behave this way. I have all these ideas of what I want church to be like. And I have to be so careful because of my position as pastor not to throw my weight around and try to conform everything to the image of the church that I want. You know, I was sharing with some friends who said, hey, how's the church plant thing going? I said, you know, one of the surprising things to me is how much this church plant has really exposed consumerism. Uh, church plants expose consumerism both in the daughter church, which I learned earlier in my life, but also in the mother church. It exposes it in the daughter church because many times when people go with, to be a part of a church plant, they go because they have this idea of what they want church to look like, of that perfect church, which Jacob's will is not. And they say, if I go, I can make the church just the way I want it. And so they try to manipulate things and control things and obsess over things to control and dictate what that church is going to look like. And then they show up at the first service and everybody's disappointed because it's not the perfect church. And so the consumerism rises up. I, I know I see this in my own heart. Uh, consumerism is also exposed at, at the mother church when we plant. You see, as we send off 60 or so folks from Jacob's Well, those 60 folks are people that serve the church well and faithfully. Uh, they want to see Christ's kingdom extended. And for that reason, they go to be a part of the church plant, which is wonderful. But here's the thing. Jacob's Well Church still has the same ministries, but we now have less people to serve in them. 
And so those that are serving are serving more with the hope and the dream that those that are just kind of coming to church will get connected and start committing to the church and serving in the church. I didn't plan this, but it's just kind of funny how God does these things. If you look at the first announcement today, uh, we had to combine children's church classrooms because we just don't have enough volunteers anymore. And I don't say that to be guilty, but just to show you this is true. All of us struggle with a consumeristic heart when it comes to church. It is the culture that we live in. It is the air that we breathe. And we can bring that even into the house of God. And so today, Paul is going to direct us on how we should engage the church. Not as consumers, not as customers, not even as contributors. But we must engage the church as family members. And as family members... We must not just go to church, we must serve the church, we must love the church, and we must be the church. Now, like I said, this passage is longer, there is so much there, uh, I will probably overload you today, which I already apologize for, but we're going to dig deep, okay, and it might be a little bit choppy, but there's so much application, Um, honestly, we could preach on this for two months, we'll do it in one hour, how about that? All right, first, Paul tells us that we should not just go to church, but we should serve the church. Verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul calls the church to serve soberly. Now, this doesn't mean if you're serving in children's church, you shouldn't drink that morning, although that's a good idea too. But to serve soberly means with sober judgment, with humbly, with understanding what your gifts are and what your gifts aren't. And that all of your gifts given to you are a gift from God. We see Paul even acknowledges this here. He starts, for by the grace given to me, I say. It was God's grace that gave Paul apostleship. It was God's grace that gave Paul the ability to teach and to disciple. God has called us to steward our gifts well. But make no mistake, those gifts are given to you by the grace of God to share with his church. And we are to make a sober assessment of where our gifts are and where our gifts aren't. Let me give you a quick example. When I served in youth ministry at New Hope Church, um, I taught on Wednesday nights, and I had a guy, uh, Pat Simpson's son, who would play guitar. Well, one One Wednesday, he couldn't be there, and I came back from a retreat, and I was just so jacked up for Jesus. I was like, I'm going to play guitar. I'm going to sing my heart out. I'm going to encourage everybody. So we get up there, and I'm I'm playing the guitar. I don't know what it was, as the deer panteth or something. I don't know. And I'm playing up there, and I'm singing my heart out. Nobody's singing, all right? Nobody's singing. I'm like, what's wrong with you all? Don't you all love Jesus? And they're like, we love Jesus. We love singing. It's just that you're throwing us off with your voice. Like, if you could just play guitar, you know, don't sing. Uh, we can sing, all right? So, so this was them giving me a sober assessment of my gifts, what I can do, what I can't do. Needless to say, Pastor Jonathan's job is very secure, and Pastor Chad's job was as well, because you've heard me sing. It's not good. We must soberly assess. What are we good at? What are we not? How has God gifted us? So we must serve the church soberly. We must also serve the church accordingly. Verse 4. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually 
members one of another. I love these verses because Paul is emphasizing our unity in the midst of diversity. In the midst of us all being unique, he's emphasizing our unity. He's saying we are all in Christ. Those who trust in Christ are united to Jesus Christ. And if you are united to Jesus Christ, then you are united to one another. We are one body, the body of Christ, and yet there is diversity of gifts that God has given to us. And so Paul uses the example of a human body. And he shows how how every member of the body is important, but they're distinct. They have different gifts, different attributes. For example, you don't sniff with your hand. You don't type with your foot. I mean, if you do, that'd be cool. And you don't walk on your hands. Each member of our physical body is so unique. And, and some are stronger than others. My right hand's stronger than my left. My right foot's stronger than my left. Similarly, we are uniquely gifted, each and every one of us, for the body of Christ, which is called the church. Paul emphasizes unity in the midst of diversity. He says, individually, members one of another. Such an interesting phrase. It's interesting that Paul didn't say, you know, you're members of the body of the church. But he says, individually, individually, members one of another. And so what I think Paul's trying to communicate is you're not just part of this big, big group of people called the church. He's saying, you belong to me and I belong to you. We are God's gift to one another. And God has gifted us to serve one another. Paul talks about this more in length in 1 Corinthians 12. Just want to read a short segment from you from there. You can read on the screen. Paul says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So if you're here and you say, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a singer, I can't strum a guitar, I can't do any of those things, so I'm not a part of the body, that's foolishness. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, I want you to see that, God arranged. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose, as he has selected. If all were a single member, where would be the body of Christ? I'm sorry, where would be the body? Where would the body be? As it is, as it is there are many parts, yet one body. Friends, it is so good. We should celebrate our unity in Christ, that we are united to Christ and therefore united to one another. But thanks be to God that all of us are so different. Thanks be to God that all of us have been given different gifts as God has arranged, as he has determined, as he has chosen. This understanding of our gifts that it's given by God, both to the degree that we have it, but also what we have, keeps us from really the polar ends. It keeps us from arrogance. We can't say, oh, you know, everybody should be able to do things the way I do it, right? Like maybe you're really good at hospitality and opening your home to other people and just making them feel welcome. And we are all called to be hospitable, but maybe this is just a gift of yours. And you're thinking, why is everyone not as hospitable as I am? Well, you see, that's arrogance. That's not recognizing that God has gifted us differently. And so so this protects us from arrogance, but also protects us from self-deprecation. 
You may say, again, like Paul said here, I'm not an ear, I'm not a mouth, I'm no good to the body. And God says, that is foolishness. I have gifted you. And I've gifted you to be a blessing to the church. And I've gifted you to the degree that I have gifted you so that you can fulfill my good purposes in my kingdom. We are not all gifted in the same way, nor to the same degree, but we are one body with many different gifts according to God's master plan. We are called to serve the church in accordance with our unity in Christ, but also according to the diversity of gifts that he has given to us. Paul continues in verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Friends, you probably know this is by no means an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts that God has given to his people. But Paul is making the point that God has given everyone a gift for the service of his church. God has given you a gift not to hoard to yourself, to make riches, although it might make you rich, but for the primary purpose of serving Christ's body, the church. When my friend Aaron Layton was here, I remember him sharing with me. I don't think he shared it in front of folks. I think we were just one-on-one. That in high school, he played basketball, and he was kind of a ball hog. He tried to control the whole game, do everything himself. And so he remembers the coach yelling at him many times, Aaron, we don't need you to do everything. We just need you to play your part. Church, individuals, you can't do everything. We can't ask you to do everything. You weren't gifted to do everything. I mean, everyone can help pick up chairs, right? You don't need a spiritual gift to pick up chairs. But, but how has God gifted you? You don't have to do everything. God is calling you to play your part, to be a blessing, to serve his church. If you are here and you're saying, man, I just, I just don't know how I'm gifted, there's a couple tangible things you can do. I'll give you three real quick. First is you can ask other people who know you well. My guess is they can tell you. The second is just to start serving in the church in multiple areas and see what works, see what doesn't work. But the third is to figure out what is difficult for other people but comes easily to you. I think that's maybe the most helpful thing for me that I've heard on this topic. What is easy for you that is hard for other people? You know, it's, it's so funny when I ask people to come up and share. Their first response is, no, I'm scared to talk in front of people, Right? It doesn't scare me to talk in front of people. This is easy for me. For other people, it's so hard. And it's it's a way that God shows us how he has gifted us for his body. We are one body, many parts, gifted by God's grace to serve one another for the building up of the body of Christ. Christians, we must not just go to church. We must serve the church with humility, understanding how God has gifted us, and being okay with the degree he has gifted us. And serve according to those gifts. Paul moves on, and this may seem challenging enough, um, but it actually gets harder. We must not only serve the church, we must love the church. 
We must love the church wholeheartedly. Verse 9, Paul starts it by saying, let love be genuine. I, I love the quote from Tim Keller. He says, it is easy to love humanity. It is very hard to love humans. Isn't that true? I mean, it's so easy to say, oh, I love my church. I love the people there. What about the person sitting next to you? That's much more difficult, isn't it? And yet here Paul says, let love be genuine. In the Greek, it actually means not hypocritically, okay? A hypocrite was an actor who would put on a mask and pretend that they were someone different. And so what Paul is saying here is don't love in a way that is just pretend. Love someone genuinely in the depth of your heart. Now, what does that genuine love look like? Well, this might surprise you, okay? Paul continues. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You know, I think there's this misconception that if we love someone, that there won't be any hatred in that. But in fact, I would propose that you can't really love someone unless you hate some things. For example, if I love my sister in Christ, I will hate the gambling addiction that is holding her in oppression. If I love my sister in Christ, I will hate the evil of the world that treats her differently. If we love one another, we will hate the evil that the other person is doing that is enslaving, but we'll also hate the evil that is done to them. I've heard it said this way, the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. I think that's very true. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. I think this is probably easier in general for girls than for guys, but Paul is saying, be affectionate towards one another. I know. Be affectionate, men. Tell each other how you love each other. Put a hand on each other's shoulders. Tell each other how much you appreciate each other. Give each other a word of encouragement when you are able Paul continues, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. When we genuinely love others, it allows us to praise others who are better at the same thing that we can do. It allows us to give honor to other people. Let me give you an example. When we were at the men's retreat um, Friday night, I caught Matt Grimsley, who's our church planter in Madison. We just wanted to catch up with him when we were talking about the retreat and how good it was. And uh, I had remarked about how the music was just amazing, probably the best music I ever heard. And he agreed with that. It was, it was fantastic. And we we're just kind of celebrating how God had gifted Pastor Jonathan, Pastor Chad, and two other pastors uh, in our presbytery who led this, this band. It was, it was awesome. And so then I asked him, I said, do you play an instrument? And he's like, yeah, I play some guitar. And right at that moment, um, a guy was walking by and he's like, wait, have you not heard? I'm like, heard what? He goes, you've never searched Matt Grimsley's name on Spotify? I'm like, no, I haven't. He's like, you should do that. And Matt's like, all right, you can go away now. You can go away now, right? Matt was far more interested in honoring those that were serving and celebrating the gifts that God had given to them than boasting of his own. He wasn't name dropping. He didn't try to work it in there in any way, shape, or form. But because he loves his brothers genuinely, or at least because he knows he should love his brothers genuinely, he was honoring the gifts that God had given to others, not seeking to boast of his own. And so what does wholehearted love look like? It is a genuine love that is not indifferent, but hates 
evil in a person and done to a person and is looking ready and waiting to honor and encourage one another. Not only should we love wholeheartedly, but we should also love actively. Verse 11, Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know, I love that it says serve the Lord in this passage because it's in the context of talking about the church. And it's interesting because what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is that that if you want to serve Christ, serve the person sitting next to you. Serve the person sitting behind you. I don't know if you remember Paul's conversion story. Paul was formerly called Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the church. Uh, He hated Christians. He put them in prison, approved of their death. He was on the road to Damascus to further his persecution of the church, and Jesus shows up from heaven. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Such an odd statement because Saul had never met Jesus. Saul had never encountered Jesus, at least what we know. Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting the church. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because what Jesus is communicating is that whatever you do to my church, you're doing to me. However you treat Christ's church, you are treating Christ. And so if you want to serve Christ, serve his church. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You know, it's so funny. If I read verse 12 in isolation, I would think this verse is being written to someone who is suffering uh, persecution from, from the government or whatever it might be, okay? But that's not the context of verse 12. Verse 12 is talking about in the community of believers, in the church, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer. Paul writes this because Paul knows that working with people is difficult, that it is messy, that it is hard, that we are tempted to despair over the sin of others and their lack of repentance, that we are tempted to try and fix people on our own timeline, that we are tempted to not cry out to God for help, but to try to fix the person on our own. And so, in the difficulty of loving one another, Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, whether it be time, money, manpower, a listening ear, whatever it might be, and seek to show hospitality. You know, I think there's two ways to read verse 13 as you look at it. And I probably flip-flop between the two. One way is to read verse 13 critiquing Jacob's well church. Saying, you know, Why does nobody here contribute to my needs? Uh, Why is no one here showing hospitality or befriending me? Look at verse 13. It commands the church to do this. Why is the church not doing this? And so we can read this critiquing Jacob's well church. And of course, you know the other way to read this. It's not critiquing the church, but critiquing yourself. How are you contributing to the needs of the saint? Either monetary to someone in need, or manpower because they need help moving, or relationally because they just need someone to lean on? How are you showing hospitality? Maybe, maybe it's organic for you. It's just easy to do. Maybe you have to plan it out. Let's have folks over two Fridays a month. Paul did not intend us to read verse 13 as consumers, but as contributors, as part of the family of God. And so Christians, we must not just go to church. We must serve the church, and we must love the church genuinely and actively. 
Finally, we must also be the church. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. God tells us in scriptures that our priority is to those in the church because they belong to us and we belong to them. We are gifts to each other, but the goodness that we do to other people must spill outside of the walls of the church and flood into our community. And this is what Paul says here. Verse 14, that we are to be the church to our community. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We'll come back to that in a minute, but just notice he's pointing us outside the walls of the church. Verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, I think we read those, that verse on a very superficial level a lot of times. Just, okay, if we see someone crying, go cry with them. If we see someone happy, go be happy with them. But I think what Paul is communicating here is that you are so connected. You are in such a relationship with people outside the walls of the church that when they hurt, you cannot help but hurt. When they lose their job, you are in pain. When they go through a divorce, you are broken. And when they get a promotion, you are rejoicing and you are celebrating. I think this is a challenge for all of us. All of us naturally gravitate towards people that are like us. People who have same values, the same family structure, whatever it might be. But Paul is saying, no, you must be deeply in love, deeply connected with those outside of the church so that when they are weeping, you weep too. When they are rejoicing, you rejoice too. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let me ask, do you have um, those neighbors? Uh, you know what I mean? Those neighbors, the, the neighbors that are maybe a ruckus. Uh, those neighbors that maybe you wish didn't live in the neighborhood uh, or makes you want to move out to the country. Do you, do you have those neighbors, maybe a coworker that makes you want to switch jobs? Those are the lowly people that Paul's talking about because if you want to avoid them, chances are a lot of other people want to avoid them too. And Paul is saying that you should love those lowly. You should associate with the lowly. Not in an arrogant way, trying to tell them how to fix their life, but in a harmonious way, befriending them, coming alongside them, talking to them, being the church to them. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis, a suburb called West County, which was probably one of the nicest suburbs in St. Louis. And I lived on a street called Bitterfield. And we were those neighbors. Uh, that was us. Uh, we, had, we had junk all over our, our outside of our house. I, I can explain to you more some other time. But, but it was trashy, okay? It was very trashy, run down looking. Not only that, we were also a pretty violent family. Um, the cops would get called on us about once a year, okay? So we were the family that brought down everyone else's uh, home prices by about 10%. That was us, okay? We were that family. And yet there was a couple across the street uh, who I did not know at the time were Christians. I don't think any of us were Christians at the time. But they were the church to us. They engaged us. They loved us. They cared for us. And when my mom and dad were out of town for Christmas, they had me and my brother over Christmas morning and gave us gifts and showered us with love. It is not that complicated. God is calling us to be the church to those he has sovereignly put us around. That we as a church must leave the building and not cease being the church, but then be the church at our very best. 
We must be the church to our community. But even more so, Paul points out that we must be the church to our enemy. Verse 14 again. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, I think uh, all of us probably have a bully in our life, uh, whether you are a child or an adult, uh, someone who intimidates you, maybe someone who is mean towards you, someone who makes you feel less than human. And the question is, how should we treat those folks who do evil against us, who speak those evil words, who do those evil things, whether it be a friend or a family member? And Paul says that we should bless them, that we should do what is honorable to them, that we should seek to live peaceably with them. Now, just to be clear, we should not support bullish behavior. We, we, we need to call it out. That's one way of blessing people. We need to use the appropriate means to address it if it's in a, in a business or in the community or at a school, whatever it might be. But our heart, our disposition towards them should not be one of cursing them, but of blessing them and praying for them and loving them. Verse 19, Paul makes it crystal clear. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself. Again, I don't think he's saying don't use the appropriate authorities in place at school or in the government. We get into all about that in Romans 13. But what he is saying is that we should not seek out personal retaliation against the person. Right? If they slander you, you should not respond by slandering them. But that we should seek to live in a way that builds peace with them. To live peaceably with them. Now, if your justice meter is going off, if you're saying, I can't do this. This person has done such evil against me. I could never pray for them or bless them. Justice must be served. Paul assures us that justice will be served. Verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't need to retaliate. We don't need to bring forth justice personally because God will ensure justice is had. Verse 20, to the contrary, that is to, to the contrary of everything inside of you that wants to punish that person, to hurt that person. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, this is a very confusing statement, isn't it? Paul's telling us to love, to pray for our enemy. And he's like, heap burning coals on them, right? It doesn't seem consistent. Uh, commentators kind of disagree on, on what this might mean. Some commentators think that, that, that by doing good works, you heap burning coals on their head, which leads them to repentance and to trusting in Christ. Other commentators say that you're heaping coals on their head, confirming their condemnation is just. Uh, I kind of take the middle ground, think it's, it's both. Uh, you, you've heard me say this before, but the same, I didn't come up with it, the same sun that, that hardens the clay melts the wax. I think when we respond to those who do evil against us, when we, when we try to overcome evil with good, there are two things that come of it. Uh, uh, either it leads this person to repentance and trusting in Christ, or it further solidifies their just judgment before God. And so in verse 21, Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not sure what the heaping coals is, 
But this is very clear. It is not up to us to save our enemies or to punish our enemies. It is only up to us to do good to them. How might we be overcome by evil, as Paul warns here? Just returning evil with evil. Hatred with hatred. Bullying with bullying. Have you ever said to your kids, stop yelling? Have you ever said that? Uh, I never have today. Um, We're to overcome evil with good. Rachel Denhollander was the first woman to courageously and publicly accuse Larry Nasser of abuse. And she was the last of more than 150 women to confront him in court at his sentencing. To put it lightly, Larry was her enemy. Larry had done evil against her and against so many other women. When she stood up, when Rachel stood up, she called for full justice, full sentencing, to put him away in jail for life. But during her message in court, Rachel looked at Larry and she blessed him by giving him the good news of Christ. She said, if you have read the Bible, you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make a, even one child stumble, you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. And then she ends, well, this segment of her talk saying, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, burning coals on the head, so, so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And I never saw this before. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Friends, we are not called just to go to church. That is far too small of a dream. We are called to be the church to the world around us, to the community God has put us in but also even to our enemies. Let me end with this. I read a story a while back, I can't remember where it was, about a preacher who got done with his service and he got down and he was talking to people, greeting them at the door and, and one gentleman came up to me and he said, Pastor, that was a great sermon today. Best sermon I've ever heard. And his response, the pastor's response was, we'll find out tomorrow. What he meant by that is we'll see if we actually put this thing into practice. You know, as we look at Romans 12, it asks a lot of us. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would look at it and say, how could this possibly happen? I mean, how, how could this possibly happen for anyone, much less for me? 
How is it that I could serve the church humbly, fervently, joyfully, zealously? I, I really just want to serve myself and my needs. How could that ever possibly happen? And how am I to love the church, all the church? I mean, every person of the church? How can I do that? That's impossible. People drive me crazy. They're arrogant. They're hypocrites. They post stuff on Facebook that is awful. How am I to be the church to the city of Green Bay? There are people out there who are so morally repulsive to me, who make me so uncomfortable, I want nothing to do with them. Romans 12 is completely unrealistic for any Christian, much less the church. How could anyone be motivated to do these things? Well, remember how Romans 12 started. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is the mercy of God that can change us to live out Romans chapter 12 in the most difficult times? Well, it's by understanding that everything God has called you to as the church, he has already done for you as the church. I mean, if you just look at the outline, Jesus came to serve the church in humility and according to the plan of God. Although he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what's found in the form of the servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, who is God himself, served the church humbly. Jesus loved the church wholeheartedly and actively. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Did you know that God loves you? Do you know Christ loves you wholeheartedly? And gave himself for me. His love was active upon the cross. And finally, Jesus not only came to serve and to love the church, but also came to establish his church, that we might be the church to one another and to the world. Paul says to the Christians in Rome, in Romans 5, 7 through 8, he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How could we possibly be the church to our enemies? How could we love our enemies? Because God loved you when you were his enemy and died on the cross to reconcile you to himself. In a consumeristic culture, what could make busy, self-focused people like us live out the high calling of Romans 12? It is only the mercy of God in Christ. And it is only the mercy of God through us in Christ. Today, as we officially send off all saints for this tandem gospel work in Green Bay, Romans 12 is a commission not just to all saints, but to Jake as well and to all who call on Christ to not just go to church, but to serve Christ's church, to love Christ's church, and to be Christ's church to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we come confessing our self-focus, 
our consumeristic mentalities. We confess that, that this is rooted in a belief that, that this is what's best for us, that this is what will bring us the most pleasure. And yet, Lord, you have shown us, you have demonstrated for us there is a better way to live this life, to love your church, to serve your church, to be your church to the world around us. This is an impossible task you have called us for. And so, God, we pray that you would work mightily in us to accomplish this, not for our honor, but for your honor and for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.